The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Continue where we left off this morning. Look at passage number eight. This is a passage that shows one of the reasons why you have to let go of that basic perception of babancha, which is, I am the thinker. You have a case of a person here that says, certain contemplative or Brahman with a relinquishing of speculations about the past, the relinquishing of speculations about the future, from being totally not determined on the fetters of sensuality, and from the surmounting of the rapture of seclusion in the first jhana, of unworldly pleasure or pleasure not of the flesh, and the feeling of neither pleasure nor pain in the fourth jhana thinks I am at peace, I am unbound, I am without clinging or sustenance. With regard to this, the Dathagata discerns, and he says, okay, this person claims to be, I am at peace, I am unbound, I am without sustenance. But the fact that he thinks, he still clings to one of these things. In other words, as long as there's one some sense of I am the person doing this, I am the person experiencing this, there's going to be some element of clinging in there. That's what keeps you from getting total, total freedom. And the ideal way of looking at this, he says, with regard to this, fabricated or gross, there's still the cessation of fabrications. Knowing there is that, and seeing the escape from it, the Tathagata has gone beyond it. Okay, in other words, you have to learn how to look at your experience, okay, there is that. Trying to minimize the interpretation that you're placing on it. And particularly not adding the I in front of it or the world behind it. Because it's when you see it simply as a process like that, then you can see the escape from the process. It's not like you're trying to wipe out a world or you're trying to escape from a world. You've just dissolved the world into processes, and then it's easier to see the escape. The next passage deter- it deals with a set of the four, four of the questions that the Buddha would ordinarily put aside. The question of whether after death a Tathagata exists. Now the word Tathagata here means anyone who's fully awakened. Or does this person not exist, or both exist and not exist, or neither exist or does not exist? No matter which way you try to answer that, one of those four ways, this would be a craving standpoint. In other words, it's a viewpoint that comes from craving. This perception standpoint, this product of conceiving, this product of objectification, this clinging standpoint, that's anguish. Whenever there's clinging, whenever there's craving, there's going to be anguish. And if you don't know how to let go of these things, then you're never going to gain awakening. Because basically the question about after death, does this person exist? The question is, well, does enlightenment mean that you are going to continue existing in a permanent way? Or are you going to be wiped out, or is there some magical way that you're going to be both or neither? Um, Nagarjuna uh, attacked this issue, and he basically said it was an issue that had to do with the nature of the word to exist, because it means permanent existence. And he was saying the permanent existence just does not exist. <laughs> Anything that exists, exists in, in, in terms of conditions. Um, he gets into a problem, though, when he talks about 
If, well, if you can't say that something that can dis- exists conditionally, if you can't say that they exist, you can't say that they don't exist, then why can't you say they neither exist or don't exist? Um, actually, the Buddha was getting at something entirely different. Remember we talked about how people define themselves by their cravings and clingings. When you don't have craving and clinging, you're not defined. When you're not defined, you can't talk about this person. So in other words, you can, there's, there's nothing defined there. It's like with anything, you say, you know, does this watch exist? Well, you can talk about it because it, we, we can define the watch. It's this, you know, this Timex, whatever. Um, and then we can talk about it. But if you can't define it, you say, well, if you can't define it, how are we going to talk about it? Yeah. It's the same way with this. When it's basically a choice you make not to define yourself. And when you make that choice, okay, then, you're, then you're awakened and nobody can talk about your existing or not existing or otherwise from that point on. So the, the, cor- the source of the anguish comes from the clinging and the craving here. And so when you can see this, you discern the origination of the anguish, then you are freed from even wanting to think about these questions. At the, at the end it says, thus knowing, thus seeing, you're of a nature not to declare the undeclared issues. In other words, there's no temptation to answer these questions. You aren't paralyzed, you don't quake, you don't shiver or shake over the undeclared issues. Because for a lot of people, they view these as a weakness. Why couldn't the Buddha answer the question? There's something wrong with his theory here. He's got some questions here he can't address. But he's saying the nature of the beast is such that once it's undefined, once you choose not to define yourself in any of these ways, and you develop the skills so you don't have to define yourself, okay, then, then there's no, there's no answer, you, know, you cannot answer the question. Um, I think I've told you that story about Ajahn Chah that he was giving a Dharma talk one time in England, and this woman, at the end of the talk, asked him, there's a question I've been wanting to ask for a long time. Nobody's given me a satisfactory answer. So when a person enters nirvana, do they exist or not exist? (laughs) And John Chas says, well, we don't usually answer that question, but since I so rarely come to England, I'll give you a try. (laughs) And there was a candle burning right next to where he was sitting. And he says, you see this candle burning here? And she said, yes. He says, now while it's burning, we can talk about the, f- the, sh- the shape and the color and so forth, the flame. But when you put it out, and then you put it out, now we can't talk about the flame anymore. can't describe it. He said, in the same way, when someone gains awakening, you can't describe them. He says, Do that, does that answer satisfy you? She said, no. <laughs> and then he said, in that case, I'm not satisfied with the question. <laughs> one of those great dialogues. <laughs> okay. So again, that being defined is something that you actually do to yourself. So Buddha is saying that the whole thing, why we cannot talk about the, the Arahant or the Tathagata or the Buddha after awakening is that the person is long, no longer defined by craving or clinging. So we can't, de- we can't define them ourselves. Okay, passage 10. This gets more into questions that are fit for attention and not fit for attention. Okay, go down to the end of the first paragraph there. These are some questions that lead, that grow out of Babancha, and grow out of this ob- objectification. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What was I in the past? 
pretty thorough. Okay. Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? And that's, that was a question a lot of the Upanishads were addressed to. How, is, how am I going to survive the afterlife? Assuming that I'm going to be, you know, be reborn, but I'm going to need food. How am I going to get that food up there? That's what the, that's what the, that's what the sacrifices were all about. Agni took the food up to, to higher levels. Having been what, what shall I be in the future? Or else you are inwardly perplexed about the immediate present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where is it bound? These, Buddha says, are all questions that are inappropriate. Because, because they come out of the babancha. You, once you just start assuming the I am this or I am that, then the next question is, how much longer is this being going to exist in the future? How, much, how, how long have we existed so far in the past, from the past? Where have, where have I come from? Where am I going? Now some of these, of course, especially dealing with the issue about rebirth, sounds like that's, like, that's an inappropriate question. And we'll get to that a little bit, a little bit later. Because um, there is a certain amount of useful babancha around the topic of rebirth. But the Buddha says, as you in attend inappropriate in this way, one of six kinds of view arises in you. The view, I have a self, arises in you as true and established. Or the view, I have no self. Okay, that's important. To, to say that you have no self is just as bad as saying that you have a self. In another spot where the Buddha was asked point blank, is there or is not, is there not a self? He refused to answer. And the person who asked the question got upset and went away before he, the Buddha had a chance to explain, you know, why he didn't answer the question. So Ananda asked him, well, why didn't you ask the question, answer the question? And the Buddha said, if you answer that there is a self, that you are siding with the eternalists. And if you answer there is no self, you're siding with the annihilationists. So either way is a form of wrong view. Both are forms of babancha, in which you're trying to make a statement about what is or is not lying beyond experience on either side. And here are some other views. It is precisely by means of self that I perceive self. In other words, your self has immediate intuition of itself. Or the view is precisely by means of self that I perceive not self. In other words, it's through the powers of yourself that you know what is out there beyond the self. Or it is precisely by means of not self that I perceive self. Um, Kant would be an example there. You can, you can take them down the line. By means of self that I perceive self, that's Fichte. Um, by means of self that I perceive not self, that's Leibniz. <laughs> perceive, by means of not self that I perceive self, that's Kant. It's Western philosophy. It's all a bunch of a bunch of <laughs> Or this, you have a view like this. This very self of mine, the knower that is sensitive here and there to the ripening of good and bad actions, is a self of mine that is constant, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and will endure as long as eternity. Okay, that's the Upanishadic self. Okay. The Buddha calls this a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter of views. Bound by a fetter of views, the uninstructed one of the mill person is not free from birth, aging, and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. You are not free, I tell you, from stress. Okay, then what sort of questions do you attend to? You attend appropriately to, this is stress, this is the bottom of the quote here. This is the origination of stress. This is the cessation of stress. This is the way, of le way leading to the cessation of stress. Okay. As you attend appropriately in this way, three fetters are abandoned in you. Identity view, uncertainty, and grasping in habits and practices. Um, 
So basically, once you start getting thinking and concepts of I and, and existence, then you get, you get yourself into this whole tangle of views about, well, who am I, what kind of self is this, and so on down the line. And that stands in the way of you're looking directly at the experience of stress and looking in your direct experience to say, well, what goes along with that stress? Remember, we're not, we're not looking for some sort of metaphysical entity un- underlying what we can perceive. We're actually looking directly at what we can perceive. What's arising at the same time as stress? What's falling away at the same time as stress? Is it something that I have some control of? Give it, can I let it go? I mean, craving is something you can let go. That's what you're looking for. So by looking directly at the experience rather than getting entangled in these issues of what lies behind experience, you know, who this I is and how this I is going to survive, that's when you can actually look directly at the Four Noble Truths and in that way get beyond those three fetters. Just a brief minute about the I, I, three fetters. Identity view is when you take a view of self and you define it in any way related to the five aggregates. And it can, you can either identify yourself with the aggregate, okay, the form is me, like the idea, okay, I am a physical body, this is what I am. Or I have form, I have a self that possesses this body. Or I am in form. In other words, you've got this little self inside you, the little self that looks out your eyes and listens out your ears. Or the body is in myself. In other words, you've got this larger, maybe a cosmic self in which this body is moving. So those are four ways that you could define yourself around just the aggregate of form. And you can do the same with each of the other aggregates. So sometimes you hear them talking about 20 self-identity views. That's four aggregates viewed in any of, five aggregates viewed in any of four ways. about that self, little self inside. Um, when I was a child, you know, you go, to, you go to church and you hear about the soul and you have your little image in your mind about what this soul is. And I think it was after my brother and I had grown up one time, he mentioned to me that he'd been listening to the same sermons I had. His vision of the soul was a rusty tin can with an iron rod that went through it. Now, Mine was less imaginative. I saw this, it was kind of a piece of leather. <laughs> but you know, you have that view that someplace deep inside you there's, there's this soul that's just hanging out. Uncertainty here means uncertainty as to the truth of the Buddhist teachings. Basically what happens is when you have a taste of the deathless, and that's what stream entry is, you no longer have any doubts that the Buddha knew what he was talking about. There is a deathless element and you can contact it through your efforts. And then finally, grasping at habits and practices. Sometimes you see this translated as grasping at rites and rituals. Um, the Buddha is not talking just about rites and rituals. The word sila here sometimes means precept, but it can also mean habit. In other words, good or bad habits. So these are the three things that these are the three fetters that are broken at stream entry, or they're what they call the arising of the Dharma eye. Any questions on what we've talked about so far? Yes. In so is related to sankara. Sank Sankha Panja Papancha Sankha. Sankaras, are they related? It's really hard to tell. There may, there may be some relationship, but I don't know. I was know. wondering whether appropriate uh, alternative would be objectification, fabrication. 
Not really, because the terms are used very differently. So in the in the morning chant, I think it's a salutation to the triple gem. This is the Bayagiri translation. Mm-hmm. So you go through the khandas, and you're, you're uh, not the khandas. The khandas are suffering. You go through them. And then there's a statement that's chanted: um, "There is no self in the created or the uncreated." You better I, talk to you. Better talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that, that's why I'm asking you because it seemed really surprised statement that, that that's chanted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll show you later. We'll okay. Toward the break. No, because all it says, oh, sabay sankaran anichang sabay dhammanatati is what it is, the chant is. It basically says, all phenomena are not self. That's all it's saying. In okay. other words, the word phenomena there would cover things that are fabricated and unfabricated, and that's where they get the idea of the condition or the condition and the uncondition. Yeah, well, it says the created or the uncreated. It says there is creator, no self created, the created or the uncreated. Uh-huh. Um, I'll show it to you later. Yeah. Uh, don't get me off on their translations. Um, <laughs> but, um, no, I mean, we've, we've heard this so many times, and it's, it's, you know, it became orthodoxy ever starting with the commentaries. There is no self. And then everybody has to tie themselves into knots by saying, well, how is this not an annihilationist view? And the, the answer is that, well, there was nothing there to be annihilated, uh, which... I can't buy. <laughs> yes. Totally, it's, not, it's related, but not totally on point. Four, four points. This is stress. This is the origination of stress. This is the cessation of stress. This is the way leading to the cessation of stress. Probably the four phrases you use the most in your writing. Mm-hmm. My question is just logically, why does it come, this is the cessation of stress, before this is the way leading to the cessation of stress? Because my mind always tells me I would practice the way leading to the cessation of stress before, before, before you get stress there. Cessation. Okay, um, this basically follows the pattern of a, a doctor's diagnosis in those days, which was to diagnose what the illness was, second was diagnose the cause, third was saying that it, whether it is or is not possible to cure this, and then once you've stated that it's possible to cure this, here's the cure. And also, once you've identified the cause, then the question is, you know, can, you cha- can you put an end to the cause? And then the next question is, okay, what would be the, is it possible for this to end, and then how do you do this? Yes. When you when you think, mm-hmm. it's okay. When you think, uh, you are the thinker, so it's it's difficult to separate yourself from being I am. Mm-hmm. So anything and everything that you think become papanchas. So is there anything that is called not papancha? That's one question. Okay. The second one is. Is the objective to eliminate all papanchas or the bad papanchas? 
Okay, the, the ultimate objective is to get rid of them all. And, and, but however, in getting rid of them all, the first thing you do is get rid of the bad ones. And not all, th- it, as um, Majjhima 18 said, not all thinking has to be babancha. Because you, be, you can be looking at a process and not really being concerned about the question of who is doing the thinking, but you're analyzing the process as it's happening. In that case, there's no babancha being built up around it. However, there is, there is a, there's a more subtle level in which every thinking would involve some amount of babancha. I mean, even when you look at things as processes, there's a certain amount of objectifi- objectifying the process as a specific process. I mean, the, the, one, the only thing that the Buddha says is totally unpapancha is nirvana. Okay, let's move on. Okay, the Buddha talks about craving, the ensnare that has flowed along, spread out, and caught hold, with which this world is smothered and enveloped, like a t- tangled skein, a knotted ball of string, like matted rushes and reeds, and does not go to beyond transmigration, beyond the plains of deprivation, woe, and bad destinations. Ooh, that's, that's a mouthful. But what you've got here is that everybody is all tangled up in transmi- transmigration, whether they want to be or not. Okay. There are these 18 craving verbalizations dependent on what is internal and 18 dependent on what is external. Okay, here are some basic ideas that we have. There being I am, there comes to be an I am here. In fact, this is how you locate yourself in a world of experience. You're right here in this world of experience. There comes to be an I am like this, I am other than this, or I am otherwise. Here's another one, I am bad, I am good. You know, the belief that you are inherently bad by nature, the belief that you're inherently good by nature, that gets you saddled down. If you're inherently bad by nature, there's no way you're going to save yourself. You've got to have somebody else save you. Of course, if you're inherently good by nature, why are you here? <laughs> you wouldn't be suffering. <laughs> and then I might, be, I might be here, I might be like this, I might be otherwise, may I be, may I be here, may I be like this, may I be otherwise. I will be, I will be here, I will be like this, I will be otherwise. Okay. These are some of the variations that your craving plays out on this, just internally. And then these are forms of babancha, objectification. The external ones. There being I am because of this, there comes to be I am here because of this. In other words, I am because of this, it means that there's something out there that created you. So it can either be physical, physical processes or it could be some sort of creator. But either way, you're already identifying yourself as a product of something outside you. It comes to be an I am here because of this, I am like this because of this, I am otherwise because of this, I am bad because of this, I am good because of this, God made you a good person. Okay? I might be, and so on down the line. Okay, th- these are 18 craving verbalizations depending on what is internal and 18 depending on what is external. These are called the 36 craving ver- verbalizations. Thus, with 36 craving verbalizations of this sort in the past, 36 in the future and 36 in the present, there are 108. <laughs> you can see where the idea of diffusion or proliferation begin, you know, comes, comes in here. Okay. Okay, and if you see any of, you can recognize any of your thoughts in here. 
you find that this, this is the way craving snares you and pulls you along. Passage 12 is similar. What you intend, what you arrange, and what you obsess about, this is the support for the stationing of consciousness. In other words, you're basically preparing a place where your consciousness is going to land after you pass away. But you don't have to wait until you pass away. You can also see yourself doing this as you go moment to moment. You prepare a topic to think about, and then bang, you land on it. When that consciousness lands and grows, there's the production of renewed becoming in the future. When there is the production of renewed becoming in the future, there is future birth, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. Such is the origination of this entire mass of suffering and stress. So what the Buddha is saying is you, you do these things and they don't have implications only in the present moment, but also on into the future. Now whatever choices you make are going to ha have an impulse that carries you further on into the future, creating the conditions for future becoming. And even if you don't intend or don't arrange, but you still obsess, then the same thing happens. Okay. But if you don't, this is the next page. But if you don't intend, arrange, or obsess about anything, there is no support for the station of consciousness. There being no support, there is no landing of consciousness. When the consciousness doesn't land and grow, there is no production of renewed becoming, and so on. This is the cessation of this entire mass of suffering and stress. Now, we mentioned earlier the seven obsessions. Sensual passion, resistance. Resistance here can mean you know, anger or the beginnings of anger or dislike. You can be obsessed by views. You can be obsessed with uncertainty. Um, this is the position of agnosticism. Say, I just don't know. And this is not agnostic only about the God's existence, but a lot of other issues that people talk about being agnostic about. They, just don't, they take a stance on their not knowing, which becomes an obsession. So you can't get out of this by wiggling out of it. There's a group of thinkers in the Buddhist time he called eel wrigglers, who refused to take a position on anything for fear that if you took a position you were going to get nailed down. And so they just wiggle around like eels. <laughs> and they, they still didn't get away. <laughs> okay. There's the obsession of conceit. Conceit here doesn't mean pride, it means defining yourself as an existent being. The obsession of passion for becoming is wanting to take on an identity within a particular world of experience. And the obsession of ignorance is any kind of knowledge that is not in terms of the Four Noble Truths. I was wondering, do you have to be smart to get enlightened? And you know, it seems like there's a whole lot of information here, and I can't imagine some of the people I know being able to even get a piece of this. Okay. And about people that are in poorer countries that don't have education or whatever. Um, they, they actually have a head start. <laughs> 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 they usually have good bullshit detectors. It seems like to get out of the non-thinking, you have to go through the thinking, 
I mean, if it's so simple just to let it go, could, mm. why well, again, is... What, what is... Again, it's... Part of it is that we feel so invested in the way we make ourselves suffer. And because and, if you point things out to people, say, this is really, you know, this is really crazy, and everybody says, yeah, I know, but... Um, <laughs> and it's finally being, will, being willing to put away the, the but side of that sentence and say, yeah, I know this is crazy, I've got to do something about it. I, I know a lot of the forest at John's didn't have much of an education. My teacher had a fourth grade education. And a lot of it has to do with just seeing wherever there's clinging. All you have to do is look for the stress, look for the suffering, and say, okay, what, when it comes, what comes with it, when it goes, what, what did I just do? And that peels away a lot of stuff right there. The trick is learning how to be more reflective on what you're doing while you're doing it. To notice in the action, say, and then the action of letting go, what else comes up in that action of letting go and catching, oh, there's, there's still a little bit of pride or a little bit of whatever. I'm still holding on to, and being able to catch that. And all the Ajahns I know say that you really have to be careful when you think you've accomplished something in your meditation, what's going to come up immediately after that. And it doesn't take so much book learning as it takes just plain honesty and quickness. Is there a danger in wanting to know too much or get in the world too much? Is it a lot, if you really wanted to reach that, would it be better just to go to a mountaintop? Yeah. <laughs> Although if you go to a mountaintop without any instruction, you're going to go crazy. I mean, this is why they had. This is why the sangha was established so that you'd have people you could talk to. You could point out when you're getting off course. So you want to look for somebody you can rely on. But it it is subtle. I mean, the ways of the mind, especially the tricks of the mind, are very subtle. And it's more about the ability to be just really, really observant. The Buddha asked for only two qualities, he said, in a student. One was that you be honest, and the other that you be observant. You put those two together, and that's, you're, you're, you're far along on the path. Question over here. Yeah, um, I'd like to go back to uh, the 11th uh, uh, paragraph uh, section, mm-hmm. uh, and specifically uh, the 18 craving verbalizations dependent mm-hmm. on what is external. Now, I, this bothered me when I first read it, and I, I didn't realize how much it bothered me until you went back over it again. When I think of the, uh, rightly or wrongly, when I think of the 12, uh, uh, the 12-link chain of, of uh, 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 codependent arising, uh, dependent co-arising, <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I, I, I think of it as, uh, as a, a system of deconstruction or a mm-hmm. template for analysis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, if that's correct, and if that's a reasonable way of using, using it, Mm-hmm. That would seem to disallow all these. Que- I mean, you need to be able to ask yourself these, to pose these questions. Well, what it does is it gets away from asking you the questions about the I am. It's like, okay, given the, what we have right here, why is this stress right here? Why is this craving right here? Why is this clinging right here? Yes. Without the asking about why I am here. It, that seems like a distinction without a difference. I mean, you know... You, well, and, 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 well, let's put it this way. The thought, if you want to look at the thought I am, why is there this thought I am? Then, you could, then it's part of a process. 
and then that's, diff that that's different from looking at where where am I right now? Why am I right here? You're taking you're you're looking at the processes that you're actually experiencing but rather in, than. In no way is it meant to suggest that if, if you're proceeding appropriately, that to to try to deconstruct experiences by however awkward and and mm. and uh, clumsy it may be to mm. you know use the twelve link chain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, if you're not egocentric in that process or wedded to the concept of I, mm -hmm. then it's, it's, That's a perfectly wholesome, fine. it's a wholesome procedure. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Good question. So there's a, a sutta in which I think it's Sariputta and Ananda, and, and the, it's about um, what, what, is, what do you value or, or something like that. And... Um, uh, would you feel a sense of loss if the Buddha died? Mm -hmm. And um, the response is, well, no. I mean, the Buddha is a great person, but um, uh, everybody's impermanent. And the response is, you have no conceit. Right. Mm -hmm. it, what is that sense of conceit and this sense of conceit that you just mentioned? This simply the conceit that I am, the idea that I am a being. And once you've got that kind of conceit, then the question is, what do I depend on for my happiness? Um, in the case, did he depend on the Buddha for his happiness? At the point, would, it, would he feel deprived if the Buddha was gone? And by that point, Sariputta was already awakened, and so that, that he, he didn't have that sense of, I need the Buddha around here. What's I may be? What's that about? It's not I, not the same as I might, or may I be? May I be? Is it asking permission? Is it? It's, a, it's is it a express, wish? Expressing a wish. Uh, may all beings be happy? Yep, may that, I that, that's be Papancha, happy? That's Papancha. Yeah. May I be happy as <laughs> <Yeah>. Papancha? <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Just checking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Remember, it's, it's uh, not all Papancha is bad. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, passage 13. This is where the Buddha talks about feeding directly. These are the four nutriments for the maintenance of beings who have come into being or for the support of those in search of a place to be born. And that's a concept that drives a lot of people up the wall. What are these beings in search of a place to be born? Um, can I tell you a few nice stories from Thailand just to sort of lighten up the mood? <laughs> yes. a monk I know and that I trust told me that a young woman came to see him one time. And she said, you know, years back she was on a camping trip up in northern Thailand with a group of her friends. They were at a, a Thai um, waterfall. And then one day in the afternoon they were going to go, the friends were going to go up to the waterfall, but she wasn't feeling too well, so she stayed behind in her tent. And as she was in her tent, she, uh, she lay down, and after a while she heard this little child cry. And so she looked outside and there was this little boy. And the little boy said, can I come and live with you? And she said, you look cute. And so I said, okay. And then he just disappeared. And she didn't think much about it until several years later she got married and she had a boy, child, <laughs> and it was him. <laughs> Looked just like him. Um, and you hear many people talking about, psychic people talking about, sometimes seeing a woman with this little spirit kind of hovering around, just waiting for the chance. <laughs> so that would be a being in search of, someone in search of being reborn. 
There are also stories of, one of my favorite stories as one of my teacher's students was meditating one time in Bangkok and the monasteries where, the, where my teacher taught had this, what they called um, a field of envelopes behind it. An envelope in Thailand, and we have any Thais in here, Song? It's basically a, a box that you build to put a coffin in. It's made out of bricks or, or concrete blocks. And I, you probably know in Thailand, when somebody dies, they don't automatically have a cremation or a burial right away. They usually wait until it's convenient for the family to sponsor the funeral, and then they have the cremation. Now, that can take a while. You know, if, say, a son or a daughter is off studying in America, they've got to wait till the son and daughter comes back or whatever. And so they have these places where they will place the coffins in the meantime. It's made out of bricks and covered with plaster, and they seal it up. And the area behind the monastery had this long... Which it was a cremation monastery. It had a long series of these rows and rows and rows of these envelopes, they called them. Um, I have a, one of the monks I knew there used to like to do walking meditation in the rows between the envelopes. And he said the first night he did it, he was felt, felt kind of creepy with all these dead bodies around. But after several nights he was doing this and didn't think much of it until one night he was walking along and thinking, boy, I'm getting pretty good at this. I'm not really afraid of anything at all. This hand reaches out. <laughs> grabs him by the ankle. What turns out was a drug junkie He's in an empty envelope. And <laughs> says, do you have a match? <laughs> well, he almost had a heart attack before he get the match. <laughs> but another time, one of my teacher's students was sitting and meditating in the building where my teacher taught, which was right look, looking over these things. And she had this vision in her meditation that they were placing a coffin in one of the envelopes. And there was a little ceremony that they did, and then after it was done, people were leaving, and there was this one man in a suit standing right next to the entrance to the envelope. And as people were leaving, he looked left and right and went into the envelope. That startled her. And so she looked out the window, and sure enough, people were leaving from a ceremony like that. So she went down, and she asked someone, the person who died, did he look like this? And she described the man in the suit. And they said, yeah, that was him. So she went up and see my teacher and said, well, what do I do now? And he said, well, get back in your meditation and see if you can get that vision again. She did. He said, okay, now look in the envelope. And so she looked into the envelope and she saw this guy sort of leaning by his coffin, looking kind of lost, not knowing where to go. And my teacher said, okay, now spread the merit of your meditation to him. And she said it was like going down a dark road at night. You know, you get these animals in the headlights and they their eyes light up for a second as the light reflects in the iris, and then they're, they're, they run off. And she said it was like that with him. He looked straight at her, and had this kind of look of recognition in his face, and then he disappeared. So there can be this intermediate state where you're not quite yet born, and you're kind of hovering around a bit. So this is, this is the nutriment you would have in that state, also the nutriment you have now. Either physical food, which would not apply in that state, contact as a second, intellectual intention, um, or could be the intention of the will, and then consciousness. Okay, you're feeding on one of these four, either as you're in this lifetime or as you're going from one to the next, which means that you don't have to feed always on physical food. The mere intention or consciousness would be enough to provide a nutriment for that state. And so the Buddha said, these are the four nutriments for the maintenance of beings who have become into being or for the support of those in some place to be born. Because the Buddha here comes talks about beings, so immediately this one monk, Molia Bhagwana, says to him, now who feeds on the conscious nutriment? Okay, in other words, who is this that's getting reborn? And the Buddha says, not a valid question. <laughs> I don't say feeds. If I were to say feeds, then who feeds would be a valid question. But I don't say that. When I don't say that, the valid question is, 
Consciousness nutriment for what? And the valid answer is consciousness nutriment for the production of future coming into being. When that has come into being and exists, then the sixth sense media. From the sixth sense media as a record condition comes contact. Okay, who makes contact? Again, again, not a valid question. And so on down the line. It goes through feeling, craving, and clinging. And then from clinging you go to becoming, birth, aging and death, sorrow, limitation, parent, distress, and despair. Okay, here the Buddha is talking about, is one, one of the clearest examples where he's saying, I don't want to have you thinking in terms of a being that is feeding out there on this stuff. Just look at it in terms of process. Because it's through the processes that you can actually make a change. And I, like the question would be, you know, if, if something gets reborn, and then someone asks you, well, what is it that gets reborn? You say, well, I, I, you know, I'm not responsible for that. But I am responsible for craving and clinging. That's something I can do something about. That's why the Buddha focuses your attention there. One of the interesting differences between the, the way the Buddha taught about birth and redeath, birth and redeath, death and rebirth, oh, and rebirth and redeath, um, <laughs> was that back in his time, one, it was a, it was a hot issue. Did it happen? Did it not happen? And the, the the discussion would usually revolve around what is a person, and can this definition of a person be reborn or not? If you were to define the person as the body, okay, then there's no rebirth. If you were to define the person as something that was not quite physical, even then there could be cases where this non-physical thing would not survive death. Or you could define it as something that had the power to survive death. And the Buddha never got involved in any of those questions at all. Now, he wasn't talking about what does get reborn or what doesn't get reborn. The question was, how do you experience the process in the same way that he has you experience day-to-day consciousness, day-to-day sensory experience. Not reading anything behind it, not reading anything on either side, but just looking at the process. When you can look at it as a process, then you can put an end to it. If you make assumptions behind the process, those assumptions are going to pull you on. That, that's, what, that's, that's the mental choice that keeps you going. So that what has you not ask these questions about who is it that's doing the craving, or who is it that's doing the clinging. Remember we had that example from Majjhima 18 this morning about, you know, once there is feeling, then the question is, you feel this, then you perceive this, then you think that. You read the you into this, and then you get into trouble. There's a similar passage in 14, where the Buddha is going through dependent core rising, starts with ignorance and goes all the way from birth. So he gets to aging and death. And this was said, a certain monk said to the Blessed One, which is the aging death and whose is the aging and death? It's a similar sort of thing. Who does this aging and death belong to? Is the aging and death one thing that belongs to a person? And the Buddha says that's not a valid question. If one were to ask which is the aging death and whose is the aging and death, if you were, and if one were to say aging and death is one thing and the aging death is somebody, something or someone else's, both of them would have the same meaning. And as he's saying this, you're implying that there's somebody back there that owns or possesses this process of aging and death. Then he makes an interesting leap. When there's the view that the soul is the same as the body, there's no leading the holy life. When there is the view that the soul is one thing and the body another, there is no leading the holy life. In other words, either way you're going to get entangled in views 
and assumptions that are going to pull you on. Okay, if you view that the, the soul is the same thing as the body, okay, that means everything ends at death. Um, if you view that the soul is one thing and the body is another, you're still assuming a soul in there, and that's going to pull you on as well. So he says, to avoid these two extremes, the Dhatagata teaches the Dhamma via the middle. From birth as a requisition comes aging and death. In other words, look at it as a process. And it's looking at it as a process, you're going to get past it. And then so on down the line for all the... All the, all the conditions in dependent core arising. Now, if we tried to get into dependent core arising this afternoon, we'd never get out of here. Um, <laughs> but are there any questions on this issue of reading things behind the process? In your terminology, you said it's da 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 da. You'll 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 get behind it. Is there a way to rephrase that without the you in it? There will be an experience of the deathless. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, that really. I mean, on the one hand, it is. You know, if anyone asked you whose awakening was this, you'd have to say, "Well, it was my awakening." But but it's at that moment of the experience. There is no you in the experience. The language can stick it. Yeah. The one thing that it, I do want to emphasize on this is. It's all too often people will try to say, well, what time frame are we operating on under here in Dependent Corising? Is this just in one lifetime? Is this in one moment? Is this over many lifetimes? And what's interesting is that the Buddha never states specifically one time frame or another. When he's giving examples, he's giving examples from all different kinds of time frames. So he's talking about a process that can happen on the micro level, on the macro level. So the question of, does this happen within the mind, does it happen in the world out there, he's saying, don't think in those terms, just look at it as a process, which is creating your idea of in the mind or your idea of the world out there. So this way, the process itself becomes the context, and it plays out on different levels, levels of scale. It's like erosion patterns. If you take a picture of an erosion pattern and don't have anything else but the erosion pattern there, you don't know. What, how big is this? Is it just one square foot? Is this 30 miles? Because erosion patterns are the same across scale. And it's the same here. This, this process is the same across scale. Question back there. Yeah, I have a question about dementia. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we're very afraid in our culture of dementia. Mm -hmm. It's one of the top fears. And I'm just wondering, in relationship to this teaching, you know, what do we have to learn from this process of losing the mind and, you know, also losing the body? And also, as caregivers, as we're attending to a person like that, you know, um, how can we view that as a spiritual uh, journey, very much tied to uh, letting go of the clinging to the a sense of self? Okay, um, a lot of it, it makes a huge difference to how much you've been training the mind before, say, you know, the biological side of the brain begins to break down. When I saw this very clearly with John Sawat, my teacher down in San Diego, he had a bad um, automobile accident and had suffered a lot of brain damage. And it was interesting that he could be observant about how his mind was not working. He had that ability to step back from things and say, and remember one time he was saying, you know, this brain of mine um, is giving me lots of weird perceptions. 
And just the fact that he could recognize that makes a huge difference. Then he wanted to say, oh, but that thing I got from the meditation, that hasn't changed. <laughs> so. Now that, that you're talking from the perspective of a person with dementia, yeah. with mm-hmm. brain mm-hmm. or stroke mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. I was thinking more in terms of the experience as being with someone like that and how that really questions, makes one questions in the present moment, mm-hmm. this attachment to a fixed idea of how one ought to be, or a relationship. Okay, well, if, if it's someone that you've known, somebody in the family, okay, you realize... But my, my mom, for like instance. Your mom, okay. Yeah. okay, well, my father had dementia before he died. And it was, every now and then, there'd be a lucid moment, and it was kind of like, Dad came back. You know, and then he'd be off. Um, and then you realize there were these other levels that you know, he had never shown you before. Now they were coming out. And a lot of it has to do with that, you know, sort of the governing principle in the mind that things that my father would never have said before, now he's, and now he was saying. Um, but in, in the terms of your relationship to him, that, you, that really gets to the point that some, deep down within each of us, there's a part that nobody else can touch. It's how we manage our own pain. And as a caregiver, you can sort of help give nice advice during the lucid moments and say something common during the less lucid moments. But you have to realize within everybody there's something you cannot touch. And you know, the, relationship, you, the relationship, of course, is going to change, but it's just like you know, your relationship as you were growing up changed. And it was not a comfortable thing, remember? You know, when you were four-year-old, your mother took care of you in one way, and when you became six, you know, I don't want that anymore. Um, and so you were changing, and your mother had to put up with that. And this now, okay, now, the, now it's going the other way around. She's going through her changes, and you have to be, you know, be as supportive as you can. Well, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that I, I see that as really helpful. Mm-hmm. Being with my mom right now mm-hmm. is really one of the greatest teachings for me, mm-hmm. because it makes me realize the extent of the clinging that I have to. Mm-hmm. Ideas of myself, mm-hmm. you know, ideas, a daughter, ideas, mm-hmm. and she just, through her mare, through her condition, mm-hmm. just totally, um, just forces me almost to mm-hmm. ditch that. And if I don't, then I have stress. Then I have trouble. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's that's what I'm getting at. It's yeah. just, it's. I see that as a, as a really incredible opportunity mm-hmm. to learn. Yeah. a question here. Probably getting too hung up on the words, but in section 13, I was a little bit confused. I guess what, what struck me was the Blessed One saying, I don't say feeds. Mm-hmm. I don't say makes contact. It seems like you and many other Buddhist teachers say feeds, say mm-hmm. makes contact. Okay, when he's making this so kind of analysis, it's, it depends the on the le- level of analysis you're trying to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said earlier this morning, you have to see the Buddha's teachings as strategic. Who is he talking to? What level of practice are they on now? What, is he, what kind of thinking is he encouraging in, in them? And when you hear he's talking on a very high level, he's, he's, he, that's where he dropped the feeds. And, and the use of, I don't say feeds, yeah. is just... Okay, well, as I said, there's a difference... The way it between, got written down. Yeah, the, the, well, but also, right, there's a difference between saying I and saying I am. Uh-huh. When you try to identify yourself as a particular thing 
or a particular existent being, that's when you get into trouble. But like when I'm talking, and I just use the word, you know, I, I, you know, I said this or I said that, that's because, I'm, it's because Jim wasn't the one who said that. You're just identifying a fact rather just, than making a statement. Making, making a metaphysical okay. statement about an entity here, yeah. Mm-hmm. Over here. We need a flying mic. <laughs> Can you say something about the experience of the deathless and the experience of consciousness and how they're different? Well, there's, there's everyday consciousness, which is in the aggregates. And in the deathless, there is a state of consciousness, but it's not through the sense media. In fact, your sense of the sixth sense meeting, even, even the idea of the mind as a sense meeting, goes at that point. But there is an awareness. The Buddha calls it um, consciousness without surface. Calls it what? Consciousness without surface. Because your ordinary everyday has a surface that meets up with other things. But this doesn't have any surface at all. And it's not dependent on anything. So there's no experience of hearing or seeing or... No, not at that moment, no. You can also translate as consciousness without feature. It's a difficult term to translate because there are very few examples in the canon. And the only other thing that's called um, anidasana is space. 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 Mm -hmm. It doesn't always have to be experienced that way. That's a particular experience that comes at the end of the eight attainments. But this can, this can actually be attained at any, any place along the way. You know, the, the space without having a surface, there's, there's a question, um, was it um, Moggallana says that my, my mind cannot be colored by any passion in the same way that you can't take paint and paint on space because pa- space is anidasana, it doesn't have a surface. Else? That was a conversation stopper. <laughs> any, any traveling mics around here? Okay. Right here. This one, come here. Yeah, go ahead. I j- uh, just uh, uh, an explanation again on the the view that the soul is the same as the body and there's mm-hmm. uh, and the other version mm-hmm. that the soul is one thing and the body is another mm-hmm. I have a person that insists on talking having conversations about a soul mm-hmm. and so <laughs> I just want to get this in my uh, understand this clear why would uh, that uh, why is there no way of leading the holy life because you start putting these ideas on your experience and it prevents you from seeing the four noble truths You want to drop both of those ideas that you that there's nothing here but the body, or at the same time you want to drop the idea that there's kind of some sort of soul back here that's in possession of the body, because you want to look directly. Well, where is the suffering right now? And as long as you've got that assumption operating in the back, it prevents you from fully getting into that process and being able to let things go. Because that, in and of itself, holding on to that view is is a kind of holding on. 
So by holding on to the view that there's a soul, there's no way that you would, could become free. There comes a point where you have to say, okay, I've got to let go of that one go. Mm-hmm. Holding on to the view there is no soul also cuts in the way. It's one of those questions you just don't get involved in. So, um, can you speak about how the sensations um, either um, support the clinging to our assumptions or vice versa? For example, um, these patterns say, I want to ask a question. Suddenly I'm feeling, you know, nervous. Mm -hmm. So I intellectually can say, well, you know, that's maybe a past, whatever fear of... Mm -hmm you know, um, whatever. I can let that go, but I still feel these, you know, sensations. Or like um, if I'm, I'm leaving my mother, you know, the sensations of like the sadness or something. I, I know what the process is, and yet I can still feel it in my body. So I'm wondering how those two go together, if Well, they're, they're layers of knowing. If you've been indulging in holding on to a particular thing and then say, okay, now, now it's time to let go. The momentum is too strong just to, just to decide to let go like that. So it's, that's part of the sensations mm-hmm. that... The sensations the bo- mirror that something else is going on in the mind. Okay, so that's the um, reservoir of yeah. having mm-hmm. fed that yeah. is now saying not yet. Yeah. I'm mean, going to get used to feeding on things and suddenly say, okay, now time to let go. Stop feeding. And it's, okay. there's going to be a momentum that car- carries on. Now, there are, on the other hand, there are times when you have a, you know, a moment of anger, and the anger really does pass, but you've got the physical sensations are still there. Okay. And that, we know, is because you've got all those hormones in your blood right now, and they haven't left. And so sometimes you have to say, okay, I'll just sit there with the hormones and watch the reaction. Because all too often we say, gee, that's a sign I must still be angry about this person. And then you start feeding that cycle again, which you don't want to do. So same for the sensations. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, I'm nervous. I must be nervous. No, mm-hmm. I'm not. But mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's been fed before. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So I just have to hope, wait it out. Right, wait it out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. okay, we've got a little time here to look at some useful babancha. Okay. Okay, first one. Venerable Ananda is talking. This body comes into being through conceit, and yet it is by relying on conceit that conceit is to be abandoned. Thus it was said. In reference to what was it said? There's a case, here's here's Ananda teaching a nun. There's a case, sister, where a monk hears. The monk named such and such, they say, through the ending of the fermentations, Ananda could be sexist when he wanted to, you know. <laughs> they say through the ending of fermentations, as entered remains in the fermentation free, awareness release and discernment release, having directly known and realized them for himself right in the here and now. That's the standard description of an arahant. The thought occurs to him, he's done this, why not me? Okay. Down at the bottom, then why not me? Then at a later time he abandons conceit, having relied on conceit. So this is a case where we're talking about the self as a producer. In other words, they can do it, why can't I? I've got, the, I've got these abilities within my, under my control. And that is a lot of what the Buddha 
says is a, is a valid way of thinking about self is thinking about the areas you can control. I can control my mind enough, I can control my actions enough, I can do this too. So this is a useful form of papancha. They've got that ability, I've got that ability to, to, to let me work on that. By working on that conviction, then you are able to finally abandon the conceit. In other words, you get to the point where you don't need the conceit anymore. Passage 16 deals with the self as the consumer. This comes from a passage where the Buddha talks about three different ways, he called governing principles here, three different ways of talking yourself to stick with a practice. One is the self, one is the Dharma, one is the world. Um, thinking about the Dharma, you say, this is a wonderful Dharma, this is a very rare opportunity, I have to practice it, why, do I, you know, why don't I stick with it? His reflection on the world as a governing principle, I think, is really interesting. He says, here I am, sitting here with my mind as a miserable state. There are those who have the ability to read minds. They might be reading my mind right now. <laughs> Do I want my mind to be read like this, you know? <laughs> Not that way you get your act together, okay? Here, though, we're talking about the self as a governing principle. There's a case where a monk, having gone to wilderness, to the foot of a tree, to an empty dwelling, reflects on this. It's not for the sake of robes that I've gone forth from the home life into homelessness. It's not for the sake of alms food, for the sake of lodgings, or for the sake of this or that future becoming that I've gone forth from the home life into homelessness. Simply that I am beset by birth, aging, and death, by sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, and despairs, beset by stress, overcome with stress, and I hope perhaps the end of this entire mass of suffering and stress might be known. Okay, I came here, this is why I ordained, I want to put it into stress. So he's, basically you're talking about a monk who's thinking of disrobing. Now, if I were to seek the same sort of sensual pleasures that I abandoned in going forth from home into homelessness, or a worse sort, that would not be fitting for me. In other words, if the pleasures that would come about from disrobing would not be as good as the pleasures that I'm giving up. So he reflects on this. My persistence will be aroused and not lax. My mindfulness established and not confused. My body calm and not aroused. My mind centered and unified. Having made himself his governing principle, he abandons what is unskillful and develops what is skillful. Abandons what is blameworthy, develops what is unblameworthy, and looks after himself in a pure way. This is called the self as a governing principle. In other words, you think about your own well-being. And that is, that is a kind of a bancha. You know, I do want to see this in the future. I do want to have this happiness in the future. Um, and if I were to give up now, I would just be falling down and not really providing myself with the happiness that I really wanted. So you basically you get your act together. And this is another useful form of babancha. Okay. The next passage deals with rebirth. Okay. And again, there are two ways of thinking about rebirth. One is using babancha and the other is not. We'll start, we'll start with the, start, the kind of stuff that uses babancha. And the Buddha here is talking about that the name of the this, this discourse that this passage is taken from is the safe bet. <laughs> the Buddha is using the image of gambling. Okay? You're, taking, you're taking a wager. Um, I was talking to a Dharma teacher a while back, and he, he said he thought this was an insulting discourse, talking about bets. 
And you stop and think about it, and all your actions are a wager of some form or another. If you're going to deny yourself pleasure right now, it's because you think there's something better that's going to come along in the future. Um, The question is, how much further in the future do you have to calculate? Um, There's no proof one way or the other, but the Buddha says it is a safer bet to go with the idea that there is rebirth and that the the experiences you have after rebirth will depend on your actions, because that would incite you to act in a way that is skillful. This is primarily one of the reasons why he talks about the topic, because he's trying to get people to focus on their actions and to have trust that by becoming skillful it's not going to be a waste of time. And giving up all those unskillful things that you like to do is not going to be starving yourself or depriving yourself, that there will be a reward. And if you say, I don't want to have rewards, then you're not really being honest with yourself. Okay, householders of those contemplatives and Brahmins who hold this doctrine, hold this view, there is nothing given, nothing offered, nothing sacrificed. In other words, there is no virtue in giving or offering or sacrificing things. There is no fruit or result of good or bad actions. There is no this world, no next world, no mother, no father. You say, wait a minute, no mother, no father. What they're talking about here is that there was a belief that your mother and father had no real virtue in having raised you. You did not owe them a debt of gratitude. Now basically what this comes down to is primarily a belief in determinism, that your parents had you because they had to, and they looked after you because they had to, so there's no virtue there, so you don't owe them anything. The same with generosity. People are generous because you know, they're determined to be generous, so there's no virtue there. And the Buddha is basically saying, no, none of that, all of this is wrong view. Although you can understand why there was some skepticism about giving and offering and sacrificing, because the Brahmins, for centuries, had kept saying, there is a virtue in giving, there is a virtue in offering, there is a virtue in sacrificing, if you do it to us. <laughs> Give to the Brahmins. There was even a funeral ceremony where you were making merit for your dead ancestors. And part of the script in the funeral ceremony is that the Brahmins would turn to the donors at one point and say, we are now speaking in the voice of your dead ancestors. Give to the Brahmins, okay? <laughs> we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're cold, we lack all kinds of things. The things you give to the Brahmins will come to us. And then part of the script, you would give things to the Brahmins. And the next part of the script is, this is not enough, we need more. <laughs> you can see where that was going to lead. There is nothing given, there's nothing offered, there's nothing sacrificed. This is a reaction to the Brahmins. Now the Buddha is basically saying, when he says, well, we'll go down into right view in a minute, but this is the kind of wrong view. If you, if you believe these things, there's no virtue in giving, there's no, grat- there's no need to have gr- gratitude for your parents, there's no world, there's no world of life after, the, after death, there are no spontaneously reborn beings, that refers to beings in heaven and hell. There are no contemplatives of Brahmins who, faring rightly and practicing rightly, proclaim this world and the next after having directly known and realized it for themselves. In other words, you say it's not possible for anybody to know whether there would be a life after this one. Okay, that's a wrong view from the Buddhist point of view. It can be expected that shunning these three skillful activities, good bodily conduct, good verbal conduct, good mental conduct, they will adopt and practice three unskillful activities, bad bodily conduct, bad verbal conduct, bad mental conduct. Why is that? Because those venerable contemplatives and Brahmins do not see in unskillful activities the drawbacks, the degradation, the defilement, nor in skillful activities the rewards of renunciation resembling cleansing. 
And then he goes on to say, because there actually is a next world, the view of one who thinks there is no next world is his wrong view. Because there actually is this, this world, when he's resolved, is the next world, he's resolved that there is no next world, that is his wrong resolve. And he goes on through, you've got wrong speech, wrong action, etc. Because there is the next world, when he says there is no next world, he makes himself an opponent to those arahants who know the next world. Because there actually is the next world, when he persuades another that there is no next world, that is persuasion in what is not true dharma. And in that persuasion in what is not true dharma, he exalts himself and disparages others. We've seen a lot of that. Whatever good ha habituation he previously had is abandoned, while bad habituation is manifested. In this wrong view, wrong resolve, wrong speech, opposition to arahants, persuasion in what is not true dharma, exaltation of self and disparagement of others, these many evil, unskillful activities come into play in dependence on wrong view. Okay, it's a pretty strong statement. But basically saying that if you don't believe that there is the possibility of rebirth, you are more likely to misbehave and make up lots of bad karma for yourself. Okay, with regard to this, an observant person considers thus. If there is no next world, then with the breakup of the body after death, this venerable person has made himself safe. But if there is the next world, then this venerable person on the breakup of the body after death will reappear in a plane of deprivation, a bad destination, a lower realm, hell. Even if we didn't speak of the next world, and there weren't the true statement of those venerable contemplatives and Brahmins who know about the next world, this venerable person is still criticized in the here and now by the observant as a person of bad habits and wrong view, one who holds to a doctrine of non-existence. If there really is a next world, then this venerable person has made a bad throw that's like a throw of dice twice, and that he's criticized by the observant here and now, and in that with the break of the body after death he will reappear in a plane of deprivation, a bad destination, the lower realm hell. Thus this safe bet teaching, when poorly grasped and poorly adopted by him, covers only one side, in other words, if it turns out there is no next world, and leaves behind the possibility of the skillful. And then there's the opposite, that if you do have the right view on this, it can be expected that you will abandon unskillful quality and adopt skillful, skillful excuse me, abandon unskillful activities, adopt skillful ones. And in so doing one, if you think there's the next world, that's your right view. When you resolve that there is the next world, that is your right resolve. When you speak that there is the next world, that is your right speech. If you're not an opponent to the arahants, and you persuade others in what is true dharma. In other words, you create a lot of skillful karma. And he says, this is a safe bet teaching because you're safe regardless. So he says, even if you didn't, we're not sure of whether there is or is not a next world, it's best to take the assumption. And this is basically the best the Buddha can do as an argument. So he can't bring it out and show it to you that there is a next world. But he says, look, you've got all these arahants who've said there is a next world. You've got the Buddhas who've said it, there is a next world. Look at the kind of life you're going to live if you don't believe in the next world. It's better for you to take it on as a working hypothesis. This becomes a basis. Because he doesn't say that belief in Buddhism is not the same as belief in Christianity, where you have to you know, believe deep down in your heart, yes, 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 I believe, 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 regardless. The Buddha is saying, you admit the fact that you don't know, but you take it as, as a hypothesis. That's all he's asking. Um, I don't know if it's true, but I was told they're, they're recently having an outbreak of crime among older people. There's a lot of um, shoplifting. This may be because of the economy, but maybe because they decide, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> I've also been told that there's been a recent outbreak of venereal disease in old folks' homes. 
which is kind of gross when you think about it. <laughs> so. <laughs> you like that? Huh? <laughs> so. so what do you think of this statement here? I have a question. Okay, Mike. Okay, okay. Uh, the cancer I'll, re- I'll repeat the question okay. for this anonymous person. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, I'm not quite sure of the question, so I'm just going to try to. It's kind of bubbling here. So it seems that, that if someone, hypothetically, some theoretical being, um, touched into the dentalist or had some um, stream entry. Um, then they would uh, be corrected of this wrong view. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, I mean, it will, when you have the experience of stream entry, the one thing, as I said, you're stepping out of time, and you get a sense of, you may, not get the, you may not see all the details, but you have a sense of what you are stepping out of. And you realize, okay, this life did not start, or this chain of events did not start with the birth of this, of this body. Then that that would be that you. That's not. It's not a. It's not the eye of the dharma. It's not stream entry. If they refuse to admit the possibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been doing some teaching. I'm wondering if it's working with how skillful it is to present mm-hmm. rebirth mm-hmm. to people, particularly the ones that are brand new, just stepping onto the path or mm-hmm. you know, have some notion, and then they, they hear this and they go, you know, this, I'm, I'm coming to Buddhism because mm-hmm. I don't want to have to believe in something that I can't directly experience mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. So how do you deal <coughs> with, with that? You would have to say, well, where are you going to go? Because whatever you do, there has to be an element of belief, even in things you know, like you, know, you don't know that the Buddha's awakened, right? When you're starting out, you're assuming that it is possible for a human being maybe to gain awakening. It's it's a, it's a kind of a belief, the belief that awakening is possible for all people. That's a belief. Um, I think there's, there's there tends to be a lot of stuff you know around the next life, and uh, the idea of punishment in the next life, which has people a lot of, you know, bothers a lot of people. Um, I must admit, I, don't, I myself don't bring it up in the, you know, the first day of a, of a class. But there comes a point where you say, look, if you're going to stick with this practice, you have to look at your life and ask yourself, well, what assumptions am I working on? So that would be a, the, the, kind of the skill of the teacher to be able to see when the student is, is ready, ready mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. start examining this. Mm-hmm. And I've also noticed here in the West, there's a lot more, I guess you'd call, allergic reaction around the word belief. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's good political reasons for that. You, know, so you believe this, you're going to go to hell. Mm-hmm. Um, and belief being that you have to turn off all of your questioning abilities and all of your, all your doubts. Now, you know, the Buddha said, you are going to have doubts until you have stream entry. And be, be upfront about the fact. But in the meantime, what are you going to take as a working hypothesis? 
What are you going to choose as an assumption? Because um, we're, we're choosing assumptions one way or another, when, as I said, when every time you calculate the benefits and drawbacks of an action. Um, that was, and this, this is, you know, the Buddha himself is making this point here when you make this question about the safe bet. What are the, the, what are the drawbacks and benefits of believing, acting on this assumption? And when you're calculating, okay, I'm going to make an investment. Now, how, long, how much longer do I plan to live if I'm going to make an investment for my, for my retirement? You say, well, I'm going to have a really nice retirement for five years or, and then die, or do I rather have sort of a mediocre retirement for 50 years? You know? And of course, you don't know, in that case, how you're going to provide. But if you, if you totally rule out the possibility that there is rebirth, then you're going to make certain actions. And if you say, okay, I'm an agnostic on this, I'm not going to take a position, still the way you act is going to involve some assumptions. Some calculation. So, pointing out to people that whether they believe it or not, they are making assumptions. Exactly. They are working on beliefs, mm -hmm. even if they think they they don't have. Right. Mm -hmm. well, I've talked to people who say, "Well, this thing about rebirth—that's a metaphysical assumption," and I don't believe in metaphysical assumptions. And I said, "Well, if you believe there is no rebirth, that's a metaphysical assumption too." You know? Yes. Let's move around. I guess I don't understand this part of it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I mean, obviously, the idea of the self here is the continuous self. Mm -hmm. Yet, it it seems to me that if you accept the four noble truths and the virtues, mm -hmm. it really. Is a moot point whether there's rebirth or not. This seems like a goad mm -hmm. to be good. It's a goad. <laughs> <laughs> but again, if you accept the Four Noble Truths, there's there's still the question. The Buddha says, you know, birth is suffering, and he says we're going to put an end to it, all these forms of suffering. And he's also saying we're going to put an end to birth. If that were not one of the issues, he wouldn't have mentioned it in the line of you know what he meant as suffering. And in some things, like in Zen. Uh, the idea is that even if you enter nirvana, you come back until the last sentient being is not suffering. Now that's something I can't buy. That's <laughs> okay. I'm not going to try to yeah, sell yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean if you're if you're in nirvana, you don't have any 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 anything that's going to compel you to come back. And I, I must admit that picture of everybody waiting for everybody else to get out. It's like you know the, the the you know the movie theater is on fire and the, everybody everybody at the exit is saying no you go first. <laughs> yes. Another one here. Uh, you mentioned this. I forgot exactly what you said, but there's this technical term I've read called change of lineage. Mm -hmm. is, is that the same? Kotarapu, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's a technical term in Abhidhamma. Well, it's, 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 it's said to be the, you know, the point where you switch over from being a, an ordinary person to a noble, noble disciple. There's questions over here? Okay. Is this sign? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, would you... Uh, be willing to tell us uh, uh, 
this term stream entry or sotapanna, mm-hmm. um, it's people talk about it in different ways. Some people say you're a stream enterer when this happens and other people. Uh, would you tell us what, what you think about that? What do I think about that? Yes. <laughs> uh, okay. Would you define it for us okay. in some um, way? It's basically, it, stream entry happens when you've got the mind as quiet as possible that you can through your concentration practice. And you start asking the question, is there still some stress here? And you look for it. And this is one of the reasons why you look for inconstancy, because you want to see the rise and the fall of the level of stress experienced by the mind. We're not talking about the body now. Um, and you begin to notice that there are certain things that you do that are going to raise the stress level, and even just, just minor things at this point in your concentration. And <clears throat> you say, I'm going to stop doing that. And then you stop doing that, and that, that will take you to another level of concentration. So you go through the levels of concentration this way. Finally, you get as far as you can go in concentration, and you begin to realize, you know, if I make it, once you get that question comes up, I, there's stress if I stay here, but there's going to be stress if I move. And, it's the, and it's, this is where it gets kind of paradoxical, is you neither stay nor move. There's no intention either way, because you realize whichever way you intend, there's going to be stress. And it's in that moment of non-intention that things open up. And it's very impressive. It's not one of these things you say, didn't she? I didn't. I had stream entry. I didn't know it. I mean, <laughs> I mean it's 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 earth shattering. Okay. 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 Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes, Tony. Here it comes. I'm wondering if you would um, consider this uh, the unconditioned element that you refer to as as something that um, has a permanent essence and and is uh, association with or contact with would be certainly satisfying. So it would not be anicca, not be anatta, not be dukkha. It's, it's none of those three, um, but it's also not self either. No, it just just not anicca. It's, it's not, like a different dimension. It's like a different dimension. I mean, the, there is that question about you know Buddhism being essentialist or non-essentialist, and the Buddha says you know there is an essence to the practice, which is release. And that's what it's all about, and that's what that's what really matters in Buddhism. Um, as to the, the nature of what Nirvana is, you know, he's pretty. He doesn't define it that much, and you certainly don't want to get into a metaphysical issue about. He certainly denies <coughs> the fact that the Nirvana would be the origination of anything. It's not the ground of being, and it's not sort of some sort of metaphysical substrate. It doesn't have an essence. But it's freedom. So it's not a thing. So it's not a thing. Yes. Uh, there's a there's a confusion here about all the, all the many questions that you mentioned that were not appropriate to being asked. Mm-hmm. And there were many questions having to do with next life mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. or concepts. And, and here you're talking about um, tossing a coin or making a bet or mm-hmm. taking on a probabilistic view. We're, we're talking about useful babancha right now. Yeah, right. Uh, I'm sorry. 
Uh-huh. Okay, those, those inappropriate questions were all questions that lead to babancha or based on babancha. But the, the section we're dealing with right now is useful babancha. We'll get to the end, we'll get to a passage, several passages where the Buddha is talking about um, rebirth and there's no you know, sense of the being or the I am in this, it's all process. But for right now, we're talking about it in terms of you know, ordinary, everyday babancha kind of thinking. And the, why did the Buddha talk about this? In this particular case, he sees it as a motivation for skillful action. But skillful action, you don't need any concepts about the next life to be able to do skillful action. You can do it, but the, I, sense, I would say that, you know, the, the intensity with which you would do it and, and the carefulness with which you would stick with it would change. Especially if you're trying for release. I mean, the Buddha says at another point, you don't have to come down one way or the other on whether or not there is another life, but you have to take into consideration the possibility that there is, and so you want to be, again, cover your bets. But he says, all you have to do is you know, practice the Brahma Viharas and you'll come back okay. But the question is, do you just want to come back okay, or would you like something better? <laughs> okay, shall we break? Okay, it's time. Come back around five after three. That gives you 20 minutes.